the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, the winds of March have blown April showers our way, and you're all spared an April Fool's Day podcast by the tiniest margin. Plus, politics, politics in, in space. space, and the word on new hardcover releases. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Editorial Assistant Christopher Rocchio, filling in for Tony Daniel, who has yet to return from the snowy lands inside the office wardrobe. You have to open the door. We're mounting a rescue operation as we speak. We still have a bit of a different show for you today, with part two of our two-part roundtable discussion with David Drake, Susan R. Matthews, and Michael Z. Williamson, in which we muse about political systems in science fiction and speculate about the distant future of our own world. And, of course, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. Now, here's the news. With March going out all lamb-like and April right around the corner, we have two new hardcovers coming out this coming week. Up first, The Ring of Fire widens with 1636, The Mission to the Mughals, from Eric Flint and co-author Griffin Barber, which brings us to Mughal India just as the Taj Mahal is being constructed. The latest entry in the multiple New York Times best-selling Ring of Fire series, created by Eric Flint. After carving a free state for itself in war-torn 17th century Europe, citizens of the modern town of Grantville, West Virginia, go on a quest for the makings of medicines that have yet to be invented. The United States of Europe, the new nation formed by an alliance between the Swedish king Gustavus Adolphus and the West Virginians hurled back in time by a cosmic accident, the Ring of Fire, is beset by enemies on all sides. The U.S.E. needs a reliable source of opiates for those wounded in action, as well as other goods not available in Europe. The Prime Minister of the U.S.E., Mike Stearns, sends a mission to the Mughal Empire of India with the aim of securing a trade deal with the Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan. The mission consists of a mixed group of uptimers and downtimers, including paramedics, a squad of soldiers with railroad building experience, a spy, and a pair of swindlers. On reaching India, the mission finds a grieving emperor obsessed with building the Taj Mahal, harem-bound princesses, warrior princes, and an Afghan adventurer embroiled in the many plots of the Mughal court. The emperor's sons are plotting against each other, and war is brewing with the newly risen Sikh faith. But in the midst of these intrigues, the USE mission finds an ally, the brilliant and beautiful Jahanara Begum, the eldest daughter of Shah Jahan. She is the mistress of her father's harem, and a power in her own right, who wishes to learn more of these women who are free in a way she can scarcely comprehend. When the emperor learns of what befalls his empire and children in the time that was, he makes every effort to change their fate. But emperors, princesses, and princes are no more immune to the inexorable waves of change created by the Ring of Fire than are the Americans themselves. Tony Daniel will be interviewing Eric Flint and Griffin Barber on the podcast next week. Also up this month is something real special, the limited edition leather-bound copy of Larry Correa's Monster Hunter Vendetta. This is a special run of Larry Correa's second installment in the best-selling Monster Hunter International series, done in hardcover with a sweet red leather binding. 
Only 1,000 of these beauties are in print, so I'd try and find yours now if you haven't already. Accountant-turned-professional monster hunter Owens Estava Pitt managed to stop the nefarious Old Ones invasion plans last year, but as a result made an enemy out of one of the most powerful beings in the universe. Now an evil death cult known as the Church of the Temporary Mortal Condition wants to capture Owen in order to gain the favor of the Great Old Ones. The Condition is led by a fanatical necromancer known as the Shadow Man. The government wants to capture the Shadow Man and has assigned the enigmatic Agent Franks to be Owen's full-time bodyguard, which is a polite way of saying that Owen is monster bait. With supernatural assassins targeting his family, a spy in their midst, and horrific beasties lurking around every corner, Owen and the staff of Monster Hunter International don't need to go hunting, because this time, the monsters are hunting them. Fortunately, this bait is armed and very, very dangerous. 1636, Mission to the Moogles by Eric Flint and Griffin Barber, as well as the limited edition leather-bound Monster Hunter Vendetta from Larry Correa, will be for sale this coming Tuesday from booksellers everywhere. We will also be raffling off five copies of Mission to the Moogles for our U.S. readers through Goodreads, as well as two copies, just two, of the limited edition Monster Hunter Vendetta leather-bound edition for our international readers alone. We figured it was time we'd do something special for our friends overseas. The following is the final part of a two-part interview with David Drake, with Susan R. Matthews, and Michael Z. Williamson. For part one, tune in to the previous week's podcast at bane.com slash podcast. It sounds like a pretty okay scenario, except for the nuclear weapons pointed at everyone's heads. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, but but that's been true for a long time. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, no getting away from the, 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 safe. Why are you pointing at anyone? Well, the... <laughs> right. I mean, there's always idiots, there's always nut jobs, but by and large, most people have really don't want to get into fights. No, I absolutely right. agree with you. Yeah. Uh, they, they tested the plutonium bomb. They did not bother to test the uranium bomb that was actually used on Hiroshima. Uh, the Trinity test was not of the bomb that was then used on Hiroshima. Uh they weren't sure they could get a plutonium bomb to work in 1945. They knew they could get a uranium bomb, so the one they tested was the one there was doubts about. And I don't think a great deal of Pakistani technology, just as Mike is saying, I've seen Pakistani knives. But I, I'm really confident they could do what we could do in 1945, they could do now. Really in fact, tough. when they did tests uh, in the 90s, um, they tested a um, pure fission device, a tritium-boosted fission device, the plutonium pit for a thermonuclear device, and something. They, they tested all of them in one shot. So that when people complain, they can say, okay, we're done, we're everything we need to. Um, <laughs> and they all worked optimally. You know, they duplicated what, it went out, what the major powers had done in the 50s and 60s, in the 90s, and were satisfied that they had it working. If I can interject, I, I'm, the, the conversation that I'm listening to, the discussion that I'm listening to here, uh, raises or, or re-raises in my mind an interesting point about world building in writing science fiction. Uh, and that is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm uh, uh, participating in the discussion and I'm 
thinking that um, I'm remembering that as an army brat uh, and and later as uh, as just a kid in school, uh, it was impressed upon me very strongly as a primary value that the government absolutely has the the monopoly on the lawful use of force. Well, that's an assumption that's in my personal background. And so when I am writing a story, writing science fiction, I am liable to start from the assumption that a legitimate government maintains an absolute monopoly on the lawful use of force. Um, One of the things that's fun about world building in a fictional environment like science fiction is uh, is kind of the thought about, well, uh, let's sidestep. What if the foundational value of government and the reason why the uh, population that participates in it uh, is satisfied with the government, dissatisfied with the government, has to do with a really, really different assumption about what the role, the proper role of government is in regulating things like the lawful use of force. Mm-hmm. Good thought. And I, I, I say um, the government has the authority to regulate force but it is not exclusive in their use, because uh, most societies recognize self-defense, even to the point of lethality, as legitimate under certain circumstances. The, 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 the point is that the government defines the circumstances based on the cultural background of the society. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. Yep, yep. Yeah. 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 Definitely. In violent agreement. I'm breathing positively. And and when the culture starts disagreeing with the government on that, then you get a civil war or a revolution. Or a soccer riot. Oh, yeah. Or over chariot races. Mm. Let me bring up soccer riots. (laughs) (laughs) I can't think of a clever way to transition into this next one, but uh, I was thinking that even in science fiction, there's a bunch of emperors and kings running around. Maybe it's not so true these days as it used to be. But w- between, you know, writers like, like David Weber, who couldn't join us today, and uh, Los Bujold and, and Frank Herbert, who's a favorite of mine, they're, you know, they're emperors everywhere. I mean, even, even Star Wars. Uh, and all this despite the current milieu being pretty anti-monarchist, you know, in the real world. Uh, do you have any idea why that might be? Why the interest in, in empires and stuff in, in literature? I'm always amused in the Star Wars situation that you've got an elected government and it's the the monarchy that is rebelling against it, which I think says something about Lucas and Hollywood's personal <laughs> mindsets. You know, you, you can you can fuss about the Empire if you like, but they do appear to be the legitimate government and it's the uh it's James the Third who is trying to overthrow it. Yeah, Jeff and I actually were discussing last night how different uh, the prequel trilogy could have been if it was the Trade Federation becoming uh, simply through um, through inertia a bigger and bigger government contractor to the point where it was basically the sole source versus. Um, various um, planetary national interests trying to exert their own force on it versus the bureaucracy not liking the contractors moving in, which does happen a lot in the contemporary world, um, versus Palpatine being uh, the figurehead and somebody else either manipulating him or trying to displace him. But uh, it might have been too complicated for a movie, but it would probably be a lot more 
realistically feasible. I kind of have two, uh, thinking about this question, two things occurred to me. And the first thing is is simply that uh, as Western European readers, uh, most of us are perfectly familiar with uh, the concept of a government based on an emperor or a king or and so on and so forth. We may not like them or, or be comfortable with them or want to live in one, but we're very familiar with the concept. So to an extent, um, writing a novel in which there's a uh, some kind of an imperial government, for instance, comes with a set of pre predefined conflicts and uh, and definitions and assumptions about what the society looks like and what the power structures are and so on and so forth. And uh, as Americans, uh, since we don't live in an imperial state, uh, I'm just going to make that statement. You know, I'm not going to qualify it with any political discourse. <laughs> uh, there, there is an American empire, but we do not have an American emperor. Oh, uh, we do not. Uh, yeah. But... Um, to an extent, it's also interesting to read about an environment that's different. It adds, uh, it helps add a flavor of being different and of being reading about a world that is different uh, from the one in which we uh, live in. So it's part of the world building in that sense. But it also seemed to me that in a very immediate sense, if you've got your protagonist you want her to move, shoot, and communicate. It seems to me that, in general, at least in the kind of fiction that I write, I want a protagonist who is in a position to effect change. And to be in a position to effect change in society, to take arms against a sea of troubles and so on and so forth, my protagonist needs to be situated in some kind of a structure in which she can move, shoot, and communicate. Selecting as a protagonist a, an elitist or privileged um, situation where the protagonist can be representative of a privileged uh, case, if you will, and have uh, numerous advantages of training, education, material goods, and so on and so forth, puts one's protagonist in a good position, uh, kind of maybe, maybe too easy and obvious a position uh, to be able to make real change uh, in, the, uh, in the outside world during the course of the story. Of course, that's probably pretty specific to a particular kind of story, and I don't want you to discount the uh, emotional power of the story in which the person with no material resources uh, through force of will and so on and so forth manages to make a major and positive change. There were empires in America, empires in Africa, empires in Asia. It seems to be a universal human thing. And, of course, then the definition of an empire can change. Uh, a economic system can be an empire in, in its own context versus, you know, versus just a political system. You know, say, I think it was Dr. Purnell who said it's a human default. Uh, eventually, a government reaches the point <clears throat> where it acts imperial and... Until something comes along to topple it, which doesn't need to be much, depending on the construction and the uh, fragility. You know, it, it, it keeps showing up in history. There's no reason it will not keep showing up in the future. We can quite properly and do refer to the Republican Empire in Rome uh, before basically Octavian brought all the power directly into him. But there was a Roman Empire before there was a Roman Emperor. And right. uh, but but that is, that is a significant thing, and that's why I say, I, look, I I don't see that there can be any real question that there is an American empire out there. You you can like it, you can dislike it. I'm not, you know, it has nothing to do with that. But 
I, I was not in Vietnam <laughs> or Cambodia, for that matter, making the world safe for democracy. I was carrying out American policy beyond the borders of America or America's immediate interests. And that's, that's just how it is. I certainly wish I hadn't been there. But, and, and indeed, I wish we hadn't been there. But there, there is an uh-huh. empire. I've stopped. Well, it's a different definition than the historical one of an empire. But yes, you can you can still draw parallels and make up a you know a chart to show the interactions and the fact that it, there, there are imperial elements to it. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and you can do that for several major countries. You can do that for Europe as a collective. You can certainly do it for the Soviet Union. Uh, it, you know, it, Absolutely. Very recently, we've had what would qualify as empires. Absolutely. Under, under various definitions. But in 100 BC, there was a Roman Empire, and it was another 50 to 100 years before there was a Roman emperor. That, that's all I mean. Yeah. My supposition, at least in why we find it attractive in literature, is it was twofold. And one of them, I think it was Susan who was saying earlier, is that it, it lets us sort of concentrate the agency of a nation in fewer people in characters, which is easier to move around in a story than having to deal with. I mean, the Star Wars prequels, you had a Senate, and it was god-awful to deal with. <laughs> from, <laughs> from a narrative standpoint, they, they were a disaster. A Senate that size is going to do very little. Oh, yeah, they couldn't possibly Probably resolve anything. Action. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it'd be worse than any parliamentary system. They would be constantly changing sides, shifting alliances, depending on what the issue was. They would they accomplish very little, which for some of us is not an unideal state of affairs. <laughs> They're busy bickering and not actually doing anything. Great. The government that governs least, yeah. <laughs> they can't mess it up. They can't fix it, but they can't mess it up either. So right, you know, we right. get you know, the good of the bad. But I just I figured maybe from like a narrative standpoint, if there are fewer cogs turning, there is less likely to go wrong just from a from a writer writing the story point of view. And it's realistic enough. The the Roman Senate in 100 BC was a pretty incompetent outfit. And the only question was who was going to take over by force most effectively soonest. And there quite a number of people did. But, you know, that, that is how it devolves. If you've got a totally ineffective governing body with effective individuals, powerful individuals, the powerful individuals will find a way to run things. Sure. I'm just saying that maybe that's fundamentally the reason we like them is because it's it's a more attractive narrative archetypally. Oh, sure. I mean, yeah. you, it's easier to write. Of course. And there's that too. <laughs> well, hey, but that's what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and hopefully it makes it harder for some critic to insist you're making a social commentary about yada, 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 which you're not. I've seen critical reviews of Freehold insisting that I was opposed to the war in Iraq and that I was supporting the war in Iraq, even though I finished writing it before that ever started. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that raises a whole other question, too, which I, I, I do social media for Bane. That's the my primary mandate, as glamorous as that is. Uh, <laughs> And uh, you, you see a lot of this in the publishing Twitter spheres that some people think that writing is about some sort of message. Like, For some people it is. Yeah. It can be. It doesn't have to be. Yeah, where does where do you fall on that? I have no ideology. I'm a nom vet. I don't believe in anything. In anything. I, I've always said that you, 
it's it's good to have a message, but it's important to make that message accessible to people and entertaining. The, the best sermon you have to give on top of K-12 will never be heard. Uh, if you're on the Jumbotron on Times Square, you're going to be heard. Then that becomes the question of are you, quote, selling out, unquote, in order to get there, you know, or if you just got lucky, you know, there's a variety of issues there, but... All my uh, all my favorite writers, musicians, everything else. The first thing they want to do is entertain people so they can make a living, and you know, be interesting, and then deliver the message. Right, sort of embed it so you don't alienate anybody, or or you alienate fewer people. <laughs> you always yeah. will alienate somebody. Look, I I had no message whatever, and in the seventies and eighties, I was getting pilloried. Uh, with great enthusiasm from people who assumed I was advocating all the things I was describing. I was, you know, basically describing war, and believe me, I was not advocating it. No. But uh, it, it... I remember a certain um, reviewer for Analog. <laughs> that. Yeah. Response. Your response was very measured and polite. Yeah, well, I... Uh, look, people write for money, people write for fame. I wrote because it was a way of letting out the very great anger that I felt at everything and most particularly myself after I got back to the world in 1971. And I wrote to stay out of jail because other ways of letting out my anger were going to wind up bad for my, well, bad, just generally bad, and I have stayed out of jail, so I am a successful writer. But the assumption of people who had their own agendas that I was trying to work out my agenda is absolute nonsense, but you can't stop people from believing what they want to believe about you. <laughs> I, I, I actually did have a friend of mine I shared a bit with who went back to grad school at the University of Chicago, and as he walked into the uh, cafeteria, a guy he'd known from two years before, before he was drafted, shouted across the cafeteria, hey, Barnhouse, how does it feel to be a baby killer? Oh, thank God. Uh, you know, that, that was the reality of the 70s, and I was <laughs> very much part of that. But, you know, it, I don't have an ideology, but that doesn't mean that people who do will not impute an ideology to me, to anybody. And, yeah, of course, uh, Mike, people trying to make you comment on the Iraq War, the fact that you, you know, were writing before the war, is really beside the point. They only know contemporary events. Yeah, look at the thousand. And Dave and I have discussed this before, and, and in fact, while I was deployed since... In my war, we had internet um, <laughs> some of the time, which is actually not an advantage. Um, you know, you know, quick minor diversion example: the water heater at home failed. I happened to be online at the time because I was researching information for material safety data sheets, which the U.S. military has to deal with in a war zone. Material control NCO. It's all about where you, how you dispose of your trash, apparently. Um, <laughs> And I, I, the wife said that the water heater had failed. And I was in a panic, and I was talking to our utility section, and who we were from New Jersey National Guard. And someone was going to 
rake her over the coals for thousands of dollars for a water heater, and I'm in a panic trying to stop that, and it hindered my ability to do my, luckily at the time, non-combat mission, whereas if she just paid too much and sent me a letter that showed up four weeks later saying, yeah, well, I replaced the water heater, I would have gone, ah, damn it, and that was in the end of it. Yeah, I did wind up saving money, which everyone always needs, but several hours of a day were spent stressing over this very minor issue while I had other things to worry about. And, you know, my war was much, much more civilized than David's. I did not actually personally get shot at at any point. <laughs> and it still took me a couple of years to get my brain back fully where I was when I got home. And that always shows up, you know, when a veteran writes a story versus a non-vet, these things get in there. Mm-hmm. And that's part of why uh, military writers and military readers tend to go together. You know, civilian writers, it, it's like, it can be very good, but it doesn't quite have the same bite, which is not at all relevant to what we're discussing. But uh. Let me say this about that. My primary reason for writing my story, uh, any of my story, has always been that I was interested in the situation and I wanted to read about it. I wanted to read... I wrote the story I wanted to read because nobody else had written it. And uh, I, there's actually, apart from the obvious issues that are involved in jurisdiction, uh, which have to do with a system of institutionalized or judicial torture as an instrument of state, and what kinds of situations my protagonist, who has a, the psychological equipment necessary to unfortunately permit him to enjoy the process a great deal. Uh, apart, from, apart from that, which is obvious, uh, which was not written to send a message, I remember the ancient quote from one of our, um, our giants of the past, if you want to send a message, try Western Union. Mm-hmm. Um, the, a particular novel I was, uh, was written because I was, it, it occurred to me to wonder what would happen if a, a militant I'm going to go ahead and get political, but please, but there's a reason. If a militant Israeli anti-terrorist uh, soldier met a a new and very uh, dangerous Muslim teacher and became convinced that that Muslim teacher was in fact the Messiah who was come at last, uh, I figured that that would be kind of interesting. But, you know, as soon as I say that, I think that we can all see immediately that that raises a whole bunch of issues that didn't interest me. Uh, I wasn't interested in weighing in on any um, any historical or current political arguments about who's right, who's wrong, what we should do to solve the problem in the Middle East. I wanted to focus strictly on the issue of uh, what would happen to a very committed elite soldier uh, firmly in, uh, firmly, who grasped firmly why she was doing what she was doing, why it was important, why it had to be done, um, but who suddenly became convinced that a, uh, an important and dangerous person uh, in the opposing force was, in fact, the uh, promised person that her cultural background had relied upon looking for, anticipating, waiting for, hoping for, longing for cultural history. God is on their side. That's a good, uh, that's a good summary. Uh, what happens if you suddenly believe that God is not on your side but the other side? Yeah. Uh, and in that instance, the, the world-building of political systems, that uh, the freedom that is provided by science fiction, was the only way in which I could see attempting to purify, if you will, 
the exact nature of the conflict that I wanted to present while avoiding to the maximum extent possible uh, reminding people of any real world um, partial parallels because they were going to distract people from my story. So the reason that I think that world building is as important as it can be in uh, science fiction and fantasy is because primarily I am my interest in writing is to say this is an interesting problem and I think other people might be interested in this problem so let me boil this problem down to the actual to the actual bones of what I think the crucial nature of the problem is and see what kind of a world I can build or institution I come up with that will support focusing people on the problem all the problem and only the problem that I want them to be paying attention to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that that's why I set the... I, I don't think it's any secret that the, the basic situation on the ground in the Hammer Slammer series is uh, Vietnam, because it's what I knew, but... You've said so publicly, so... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the... Uh, the the point was simply by distancing itself from, you know, the current politics, I could write about it with much greater ease. And I, I could write about war instead of a war. didn't really matter if you opposed Vietnam or not. And I, I've met people who didn't oppose Vietnam. I swear to God, I have. But I was, I was writing in a neutral environment. And I used mercenaries because basically um, they have no politics either. They're working for the people who pay them. And, you know, once you get down on the ground, you soldiers behave like soldiers. And I, I thought I was saving myself from difficulty by doing that. It didn't, in fact, work that way. <laughs> Well, you, you touch on uh, on something that I've thought about a bit too. Whenever I see people talking about the uh, about politicizing their work, what because there was uh, there was a bit I remember where the writers who did the last Star Wars movie to bring it back to Star Wars because that's just the sort of person I am. Uh, they were they were talking about how when they were writing the script, they thought of the Galactic Empire as being a contemporary white supremacist organization, which I thought was a mistake because that takes the narrative they were writing out of sort of a general sense and makes it very specific. And that whenever anybody does that, that they they sacrifice their particular narrative's ability to, to be broad. You know, you said you're writing about war and as opposed to a war. Yeah. But, but did they make money? Oh, yeah, of course they did. It was Star Wars. Okay, but that's then, all that mattered. I mean, when when it comes right down to cases, what a Hollywood producer really cares about is whether he's in the black. And, you know, that one was really in the black. Yeah, I should have picked a better example. Well, no, but no, I think that's a perfect example. Yeah. You, you, you have focused on the thing that was most important to them. Will this be palatable to a large number of potential moviegoers. After the uh, war in Iraq started, for about a decade, there was bunches of movies about these poor vets returning home who didn't have any real life skills and weren't sure why they'd gone overseas and were dissatisfied. <laughs> uh, one of those movies flopped. Every single one of those movies flopped, because yeah. that's one, not what people wanted to hear, and two, the people writing them had no background for writing them. Yeah. <laughs> 
here, and you know, it was the message they wanted, but it failed miserably. Mm. Mm-hmm. The the one war movie I remember seeing that I thought got it really exactly right. I didn't like the movie much. Born on the Fourth of July. I mean, you know that that was my reality. Uh, well, yeah, I, <laughs> I wasn't crippled, but but that's the um, and I wasn't a believer going over for that matter. But that's sort of okay. You went over. You've come back. We're done with you. And you know, I I, I never you know hated the Vietnamese, but I sure didn't like them much until I read a memoir by a Vietnamese, an NVA. It, it was a novel, but it was a novelized memoir, and The Sorrows of War. And I suddenly realized that they were treated even worse by their government than we were by ours. They were completely... Yeah, they were, they were complete the survivors, and there weren't very bloody many of them. Uh, the survivors were ostracized when they got back home to you know, North Vietnam. And, um, and had nothing in World War II with their survivors. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So I wish people could look at the basic problem, which is war, and not try and deal with the individuals who got caught in it, which might well screw them up. But as I say, I, I didn't much like Born on the Fourth of July, but it did track quite a lot of my personal experience. Susan, it's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, Mike, a pleasure, as always, to speak with you. Yes, and uh, looking forward to seeing you both again, hopefully sometime soon. Are you going to be at LibertyCon Day? Uh, yeah, I think I am. I, oh, excellent. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I think I'm getting dragged to that one, too, actually. Yeah, it, it's a good... I, I've gone to more than not. We have a beach house for a week, and they moved LibertyCon on top of it. I did not go. Yeah, well, so. I, I wouldn't either under the circumstances. Darn right. <laughs> Susan, if we ever meet, it will be a pleasure. Thank you, sir. I'd be looking forward to it. All right, and thank you. (laughs) May may I make one last comment? Don't call me, sir. I work for a living. Oh, for heaven's sakes. That is my dialect, and you of all people should recognize and respect my dialect. I was... You call people sir and ma'am <laughs> of your relative age and social status. All right. Well, thanks again, everybody. Thank you all. I've enjoyed it. Likewise. All right. Catch you later. That was part two of our two-part interview with David Drake, with Susan R. Matthews, and Michael Z. Williamson. For part one, you can tune in to the previous week's podcast on bain.com slash podcast. Now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. It seems Cinnabar's chief spymaster is a mother also, and her son is determined to search for treasure in the midst of a civil war. Who better to hold the boy's hand and to take the blows directed at him than Captain Daniel Leary, the Republic of Cinnabar Navy's troubleshooter, and his friend the cyberspy Adele Mundy, the only thing certain in the struggle for control of the mining planet Corsera is that the rival parties are more dangerous to their own allies than to their opponents. 
Daniel and Adele face kidnappers, pirates, and a death squad, even before they can get to the real business of ending the war on Corsera and bringing their charge home, maybe along with ancient alien treasure. Now here is the next entry of David Drake's The Sea Without a Shore. The speakers seemed to be using a bullhorn to shout through the opening at the top of the hatchway. Don't get onto the boarding bridge! Adele stopped at the base of the bridge. Vesey came up on her right side. Tovera remained a pace behind on the left. The hatch began to jerk downward with occasional squeals. Adele waved the flag back and forth, just to be doing something. Mon had fitted external speakers to the Kaisha at Daniel's direction, but they weren't normal equipment for a tramp freighter. This alternative made the whole business seem foolish, though, which was a good attitude to have toward it. Captain Sorley was silly, not threatening. When the hatch had pivoted down enough to expose the main hatch, Adele saw Rickard Cleveland standing in the middle of the hold. On either side stood a crewman wearing a hard suit. Cleveland was wearing some sort of harness. Safety lines were clipped to it and to the belts of his attendants. Tovera giggled. Vessie noticed the sound. Rather than speak to Tovera, she turned to Adele and said, Why is she laughing? Adele had to speak louder than she normally would to be heard over the sound of the hatch lowering. But it was unlikely that anyone on the ship was listening through a parabolic microphone. For that matter, it wouldn't really matter if Sorley overheard her. They must think the rigging suits provide protection, she said. A suit might stop a round from a pocket pistol at this range, or from a small submachine gun. But both Tovera and I aim for the head. And those glass-reinforced plastic panels won't even slow slugs from the long arms which Hogg and Hale are carrying. Both Madisons held pistols, which they aimed in a theatrical fashion at Cleveland's head. It was an absurd show, though if the weapons were loaded, there was a real risk that one of them might go off and blow the hostage's brains out accidentally. The main hatch banged down onto the starboard outrigger. Six more Madisons entered the hold. One was Schmidt the first officer, whom Adele recognized as the large man who had been guarding Cleveland upstairs in the dancing girl. They were armed with a mixture of pistols and long arms, often supplemented by knives of various sorts. The only ones who would survive the first two seconds, Adele thought with clinical detachment, are those who throw themselves flat on the deck where Tovera and I can't see them from where we stand. We'll have to run up the ramp to finish them. Not that it was going to come to that. Adele waved her flag again, figuratively brushing away that sequence of thoughts. Captain Sorley, Vessie called. The visible Madisons were thirty feet away, across the extension and the boarding ramp both, and Sorley must be farther yet. I'm Lieutenant Vessie of the RCN. We've been sent to procure the release of Rickard Cleveland, a Cinnabar citizen whom you're holding against his will. Obviously. Well, you can just go away again came Sorley's magnified voice from the down companionway. The hatch was open, but the captain was standing far enough up the helical staircase that he couldn't be seen. Master Cleveland made a deal with us back on Xenos, and we're not going to let him Welsh on it. This planet is listed in the sailing directions as being suitable only for emergency refuelings, Vessie said. You've already learned that you can't take off again because of damage to your thrusters. You'd learn if you got to orbit that your high drives won't work at all. There's a calcium-depositing algae on this planet, which is drawn to charged metal. 
which means any ship which has picked up static while landing through the atmosphere or which has grounded electrical equipment running. Adele wondered if Sorley had a copy of the sailing directions. He might have picked the location from a simple chart, which didn't have even the directions brief warning. You can test it yourselves, Vessie said. Look at your outriggers where they're in the water. Scrape the deposit with a knife and see how thick it is. One of the crewmen turned to Schmidt and said something in a querulous whine. Adele wouldn't have sworn to the words, but it appeared to be something along the lines of, Is that why the bloody thrusters near flipped us over? Go on, Vessie said, managing to sound contemptuous. Nobody will shoot you, I promise. Adele knew the tone was acting. She had never heard Vessie express real contempt for anyone, despite ample justification. Adele smiled bitterly. Vessie was very different from Signals Officer Mundy in that respect, as in many. Schmidt snarled a curse. He drew a machete from its canvas sheath and stomped down the boarding ramp. From the corners of his eyes, he was watching the marksman on the slope. His head flinched slightly away, as if to increase the distance between him and the gun muzzles. When you've released Cleveland, Vessie said, we'll carry you and your crew back to Brotherhood in safety. If you think your ship can be salvaged, you're welcome to come back and try, assuming Cleveland remains in good health, of course. I'm fine, Lieutenant Vessie, Cleveland called. His voice was steady, but perhaps a little higher pitched than it would have been if he hadn't had a pistol socketed in each ear. I'm very glad to see you. Schmidt reached the outrigger and swung himself toward the water, holding onto a bit with his left hand. For a moment, his body was almost out of sight from the shore. Adele heard the screal of steel on steel, then a curse. Schmidt lurched back onto the top of the outrigger. He glared at Vessie, then turned toward the hatch and bellowed. It's like she bloody says, it's like a coat of bloody green enamel. Sorley stepped out of the companionway, holding a bullhorn. He dropped it as he half ran, half hopped to put himself behind the hostage. Look, we deserve something, he called. We had a deal, me and Master Cleveland, and he tried to walk out on me. The law's on my side. There was no deal, Cleveland shouted. I had talked to... Sorley slapped the back of his head, knocking Cleveland forward. That left Sorley in plain view and the two gunmen pointing their pistols at each other. See here, said Vessie, starting up the ramp. Schmidt stepped in front of her and grabbed her arm. The machete still waggled in his right hand. Vessie kicked him in the crotch with no more hesitation than a spring releasing. Schmidt bent forward. Vessie gripped the back of his head with both hands and kneed him in the face. She wasn't strong enough to make that as effective as she might have wished, and she almost fell over as the big man slid past her down the ramp. Adele's hand was in her pocket, but she did not draw her pistol. She didn't look back to see what Tovera was doing, but there were no shots. That probably meant the little submachine gun was still concealed. Vessie was breathing hard and her face was white. She glanced down at Schmidt. Her right knee was bloody, so she had at least broken the fellow's nose. Adele reminded herself to buy Vessie a set of greys, then remembered that Vessie was no longer a midshipman without private means, but rather the first officer on ships commanded by Captain Daniel Leary, and therefore staggeringly wealthy in her own right from prize money, much like Signals Officer Mundy, only more so. Vessie picked up the dropped machete. Schmidt lay doubled up at the bottom of the ramp. Adele didn't think he was badly hurt, but he seemed willing to remain out of the action. 
She decided to ignore him, since the alternative was to shoot him through an eye socket. That seemed needlessly harsh to Adele, but it would certainly be Tovera's response if Schmidt threatened to make a problem again. Adele walked along the floating extension to the outrigger. The Madisons were watching events with expressions ranging from blankness to terror. Occasionally, one twitched his gun, but no one actually pointed a weapon at the negotiating team. Schmidt's cap had fallen off. Vessi picked it up on the point of the machete. When Vessi bent, Adele had thought she was going to stab the mate through the kidneys. Adele wouldn't have tried to interfere if Vessi had finished the fellow off, but she found it reassuring that the younger woman hadn't changed quite that much from the person Adele had thought she knew. Vessi waved the cap carefully so that she didn't fling it off the blade. Captain Sorley, she said, I just saved the life of this man here. He may have thought that I was too close to him for my friends on shore to shoot, but the cap billowed and spun as though a gust of wind had caught it. The impeller slug hit the ship's hull with a painful whang. The impact was toward the bow, meaning the shot had been hogs. There was a neon flash where the osmium projectile bounced from nickel steel, gouging a divot from the plate. The cap hung on the machete an instant longer. The second slug hit the blade tip as well as the cloth, flicking the hilt out of Vessi's hand. The machete spun away in a shower of white sparks, landing in the water. The sound of the carbine's projectile hitting the hull sternward had an unexpected bell-like purity. Vessi lowered her hand, flexing her fingers. Adele hoped the lieutenant had been holding the machete loosely, but even so it would have stung like an electric shock when the slug hit the blade. You've heard what the choice is, Vessi said. Lay your guns down and surrender or die. Which will you have? Ah, Sorley said. The thrusters are screwed. We have no choice. Throw your guns down, all of you. He drew a pistol from a cargo pocket of his utilities and tossed it on the deck. Let this one go, he said, unclipping one of the safety lines attached to Cleveland's harness. A guard loosed the other one. The visible crewman, there were almost thirty others unseen within the ship, began laying down or throwing down their weapons. The jangle of metal on metal was discordant, even without Adele knowing that a gun might go off at any instant. Sorley walked to the front of the hold, gripping Cleveland's shoulder firmly. A few of the crewmen raised their hands. The rest did the same, though Vessi hadn't ordered them to do so. Additional crewmen came out of the companionways and entered from side corridors. The hold was filling up. Adele nodded to Cleveland. Take your hand off this citizen, Captain Sorley, she said. He jerked his hand away from Cleveland's shoulder, which was good from Sorley's viewpoint because Adele had not forgotten him slapping the boy on the back of the skull. If I shot him in the wrist, he wouldn't do that again. Thank you very much, Lady Mundy, Cleveland said. Seen at close range, he looked worn and badly needed a bath. I have my faith, but there were times I felt completely alone. Adele felt a surge of sympathy. She said, I know the feeling. Cleveland's harness wasn't an impediment, but his wrists were bound with a locking tie. Adele was puzzling over how to release it when Hogg stepped past her with his knife open. He severed the tie with a quick pull. A dozen of the Kaisha's crew and Daniel himself had reached the Madison merchant. They began walking the personnel down to the shore. Adele had supposed the prisoners would be tied or hobbled before they were taken aboard the Kaisha, but the sissies seemed ready to keep control with clubs. 
the Madisons weren't going to make trouble. I know it wouldn't do me any good to sue in Zenos with all his noble friends, Sorley said, but he owes me a share of the treasure anyhow. I do not owe you anything, Captain Sorley, Cleveland said with a calm determination which reminded Adele that he was a transformationist and a civilian, because any of the sissies present would have replied in a much shorter, harsher fashion. I don't even know that there is a treasure. In any case, we don't need it now that the war is over. We don't need it, Sorley said. You say that, do you? Well, I bloody need it. There's no bloody justice. Some of us, said Tovera, stepping so close to the captain that they were almost chest to chest, should be glad that there isn't justice. Think about it, Captain Sorley. Sorley jerked his head back by reflex. Hogg was behind him. His calloused fingers slapped Sorley's skull forward. The blow sounded like a mallet driving a tent stake. Sorley's nose banged against the muzzle of the submachine gun which Tovera had finally taken from her case. Sorley yelped and threw both hands over his face. Blood dripped down his cheeks. Say it, Sorley, Tovera said. Say you don't want justice. Otherwise, I'll give you justice. Don't, Captain Sorley said through his fingers. Don't, I don't want justice. Let's get back to the Kaisha, Master Cleveland, Adele said. We're not needed here. And I don't want justice either, Captain Sorley, for I have much more on my conscience than you do on yours. That was another entry in our complete audiobook serialization of The Sea Without a Shore by David Drake. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And we may not be a soccer riot or rioting over the outcome of a Hippodrome chariot race, but our shouts of thanks and praise are just as loud to Michael Z. Williamson, to Susan R. Matthews, and to David Drake, our panelists for the past two podcasts. And I've just gotten word, yes, that Tony Daniel has escaped from the wardrobe kingdom. Welcome back, Tony. I grew to be an old man, and now I'm young again. Well, well, that sounds amazing. Uh, do, you, do you want to do the outro here? Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and everyone together. Keep reaching for the stars.